So today, we want to continue our uh, study of Breshit, of Genesis. And we're in chapter 6 now. And we uh, spent uh, uh, some time looking at uh, the genealogy of chapter 5, uh, comparing it to the genealogy of chapter 4, right? Uh, and uh, very important to, to understand uh, the difference between the generations of Cain and the generations of Seth and, and all that that means. And one of the things that we, um, that we learned is that really the entire book of Genesis is a genealogy. It's a genealogy uh, with narratives tucked into the genealogies. Uh, in fact, um, you know, in our um, Wednesday morning study this past week, we, are, we were in uh, chapter uh, 20, uh, 25, and in verse 19 of chapter 25, it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac. And of course, what is it? It's the story of the birth of Jacob and Esau. But it's called the, the record of the generations of, of uh, Isaac. Toldot, the generations, the genealogy. Descendants of Isaac. And then you read, as we saw last week, the same thing in chapter 37. The Joseph story is prefaced by this is the, uh, these are the generations of the sons of Jacob. So these are narratives in a genealogy, and they tell us important things about that generation, about that person, about that person's descendants. But when you step back and you look at the big picture, this is really uh, one long genealogy that tells us how it is that uh, man was fruitful and multiplied, that uh, this uh, a great calling upon humanity of procreating uh, took place, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, and when we come to chapter 6, we see certainly the for worse. So chapter 6 at the beginning is connected to chapter 5. It's very important. It's like an epilogue. It's like the end of that section uh, of the genealogy of, uh, of Seth, okay? And the birth of Noah and all that. So in chapter 6 of Genesis at the beginning, it says, Now it came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and that's what has been described to us in, from the, toward the end of chapter 4 through all of chapter 5. And we learned also that it took a long time. This is many years. This is hundreds of years of uh, people living and dying. Okay? Very important. Okay. So it came about when, man began, when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. 
All right, so these four verses have caused many people to write many books, okay? Because there are things in these verses that we can have an opinion on, but that we cannot be dogmatic about, because frankly, even of the way the Hebrew text is, is written, but it's important for us to understand what's going on. So the first thing we see is people were multiplying on the face of the, of the land and daughters were born. Uh, and of course, you see that back in chapter 5. You read it over and over again. And they had other sons and daughters. They had other sons and daughters, right? Uh, and of course, that if you remember, that goes back to chapter 1 of Genesis, that man is created in the image and likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Okay? So that's very important uh, uh, to understand. That it emphasizes men and women being, uh, you know, uh, being born. Okay? Now it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So the big question is, who are the sons of God? The, word, the phrase has never been used up until this point, but that's not that, that is not hugely significant because in Genesis, you have phrases that really are used later on in the Bible, but that are, uh, but, but that are used uh, earlier than their normal usage. You know, a great, a great example of that, we haven't come to it yet. Someday we'll get to Abraham. And uh, at that time, we will read about the Philistines, right? But there were no Philistines in the days of Abraham, all right? But we read about the land of the Philistines. So obviously, when this was uh, finally all put together, this work of Moses had all of its I's dotted and T's crossed, terms that were used later on were placed in these passages, okay? So that's important to know. So sons of God can be one of probably three groups of beings, okay? The first one is angels, right? Angels, all right? Uh, that uh, you have uh, angelic beings that have fallen, and we read in the scriptures about fallen angels, no doubt, uh, right? And uh, we, uh, you know, in the book of Job, we read it in other places, certainly, there's a number of places in, in, the, in the Tanakh uh, that we read about uh, fallen angels. Uh, uh, and so that is possible, that uh, these are angelic beings that uh, uh, took human uh, daughters for themselves, uh, and uh, this uh, uh, this um, was uh, certainly uh, not uh, the calling of uh, angels. Uh, this uh, was uh, an affront to God and the cause of great um, the cause of great sinfulness and the the degradation of of humanity. Now, in the Brichadasha. You have uh, in the best passage, of course, is Second Peter, Second Peter chapter four, uh, chapter two. Second Peter chapter two talks about the degradation of humanity. It says this, um, beginning in the first verse. 
But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God, here you go. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon all the ungodly, and then it goes on. Now, at first glance, we might say, oh, look, you have uh, fallen angels in the same context as uh, Noah in the ancient world. Okay? Uh, however, uh, while it could be angels, there are some good reasons to question, uh, to question that. First of all, if you read 2 Peter 2 very, really carefully, you'll notice that uh, Peter is talking about, in each one of these verses, about a different event, a different sin, right? So he talks about, for example, in, uh, in verse 4, when he says, God did not, and if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, then he says, and... Did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. In other words, he did not spare the ancient world. We do not read in Genesis about a judgment on angels. We do not read about angels dying in the flood. Uh, and so when you read in verse 5 about did not spare the ancient world, it's what we read about in Genesis, which is people who are judged. Humanity is judged. Okay? But preserved Noah. And then if you read in verse 6, you notice it begins, at least in English, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, well, the condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah is not the same as the judgment on the ancient world, which we could then say is not necessarily the same as God did not spare angels. Okay? In other words, it's not the same, necessarily the same event. But there's something else to be said about that passage. I'm only going to say it just in passing. And that is, in the ancient... You know, ancient, it's funny that you read ancient here in the text. Ancient is in the eyes of the beholder, right? You know, many people in, the, in classic literature would say ancient is like a thousand years ago. Whereas when we talk about biblical literature, ancient is 5,000 years ago. You know, or de depending on, uh, you know, the context of, of what we're talking about, what ancient is referring to. So anyway, I'll just say back in the first century before Yeshua and in, and in those days... The conventional wisdom in the Jewish world, and then taken up in the early Christian world, was that these were angels. Hence, when you read First Enoch, which was a very popular literature in that day, you're reading about the fall of the angels and the corruption of angels and so on and so forth. And it is not beyond the realm of possibility that the passage in Second Peter and for that matter, without going to it now, the passage in Jude, or Jude 6, not in Jude 6, uh, Jude 6, is a reaction, is a reaction to first Enoch, which is a reaction to 
Genesis 6 and not a direct relationship. In other words, you can't necessarily automatically turn to 2 Peter and Jude and say, aha, see, that's why these are angels. So that's, that's important to know. There's another reason why um, it may not be angels, uh, and that is we read in uh, Matthew chapter 22, at least it is implied that angels do not procreate. And so here you're reading about angels uh, having sexual relations with human beings, okay? Uh, and, uh, and so that uh, uh, is a problem also. And then uh, just lastly, and, but I think I inferred it already, is that the judgment is on humanity in Genesis 6. The judgment is not on angels. And if the sons of God are angels, then the real problem is angels. And the, the, real, the chief sinners in the story of the flood are angels. And so that's problematic. Okay? Okay, so if not angels, what? Some uh, might say uh, kings, like the descendants of Cain, for example. Uh, and remember, hundreds of years have gone by since the creation. Hundreds of years have gone by, okay? Uh, and, uh, and perhaps sons of God uh, is played, the phrase sons of God is used here to speak of uh, just, uh, you know, ungodly, uh, proud, uh, uh, pagan uh, rulers of the of the day, uh, and just seemingly that uh, you had uh, sin taking place, and that these uh, uh, sons of God would would take whoever they uh, want for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, a subset of that, which is kind of interesting, is that perhaps the sons of God are the descendants of Seth. Certain descendants of Seth. Remember that we saw last time that in Genesis chapter 5, it really is, a, you know, it is compared and it's written this way. It's written in comparison to the sons of Cain and that the line of Seth becomes a chosen line and that we, uh, we made comparisons about the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. And so perhaps the sons of God are certain descendants of Seth who had relations with people outside of their family, outside of their chosen line, perhaps descendants of, of Cain or, or whomever. And perhaps that's why we read the words, whomever they chose, whomever they chose. And that's rather interesting because we read, this is really, a, you might say, an echo or introduction to what we read, the admonitions given to Israel about not having relations with the other, not having relations with those who are not chosen. And certainly in the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant, we read the same type of admonition. So whether we're talking about angels, whether we're talking about uh, a powerful men, or just sons of Seth having relations with whomever they chose, the point is, and let us not... I uh, miss the mark, and that is, is that what we see in these hundreds of years of these genealogies is a degeneration uh, of humanity. Yes, man was procreating, procreating, being fruitful and multiplying, 
But that is not all there is to it. But the level of morality and ethics uh, uh, was in a downward spiral. Uh, and uh, we see now the reaction of God is, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. By the way, to me, just my own, again, just my own study of it, and you know, you may disagree, and that's okay on this, and, uh, on this, <laughs> and that is that he's focused on man. Notice it says in verse two, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The onus is on the sons of God, and then the next verse says, "My spirit will not strive with man, because he is also flesh." doesn't say anything about angels. So to me, the emphasis here is on humans. Whoever these sons of God are, I would venture to suggest that they're human beings. Who they are exactly, I don't know. But that they're human beings and that God is very angry at them. So much so that they represent humanity and the downward spiral of humanity. And that God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. In other words, uh, that, uh, that his uh, uh, blessing of living, the blessing of chai, the blessing of life, is not going to be 900 years. It's not going to be long, long, long periods of time. But a representative number, 120, a shorter much shorter period of a, a period of a time, right? And then we see that that's, this is just the beginning of this uh, sorrowful section. Now, and so this becomes, well, uh, well, let's continue here. Now, verse four, we thought we were out of the woods. Okay, so then we have the Nephilim. Ugh, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Who are the Nephilim, right? Who are these people, Right? You know, it's very interesting in that basically nobody knows, and one of the reasons nobody knows is because it's not, it's not translated even, right? Uh, it's just who these people are. Now, literally, it means fallen ones. It's what the etymology of the word, fallen ones, okay? I, I, so that's rather interesting. I, but now when you read the verse, the whole verse, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So one question is, is the Nephilim, those were the mighty men who were old, men of renown? That is a view that uh, 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 people take. Or it is just saying that you had giants, large people at that time, okay? We don't know. It sort of gives us uh, a little bit of a time period. Something that's very interesting about the Nephilim, though, is this. You read in this week's Torah portion, right? In Numbers chapter 13, when they come back and they say, oh, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. They were Nephilim. And they said they were the sons of An Anak. Well, there's a problem. Uh, there's a problem here. Because I don't know about you, but I don't read about any Nephilim getting on the ark. Okay, uh, and so who are the people then in Numbers chapter 13 
Are they somehow descendants of these people? May I suggest that the word Nephilim in um, Numbers is not being said literally, these are Nephilim, but they're Nephilim like they're these giants in the land. And that's what Nephilim means. They're these giants in the land. Not the very same people as before the flood, but they're Nephilim. You know, just as we might take um, uh, a, um, uh, a word, that, uh, you know, from, uh, from another time, another time period, and might apply it, uh, you know, to uh, people today, like, like, uh, like here. Let's say you have some really giant person who is a bully and uh, beats people up and is big and giant or you know, maybe is like a football play, big football player, you might say, this guy is Attila the Hun. You know, you know I mean, oh, you mean you're actually descended from that historic figure? No, we're just using uh, the word, the name in such a way. See? So the uh, Nephilim, we're not quite sure who they were, but evidently they were giants in the land. In fact, it's very interesting that in the... Uh, I believe in the Septuagint, the word here is a word that means a giant. Giant, okay? Okay. And then we see here, uh, it goes on. Now, it could just be a marker of these kinds of people were in the world at the time when this was happening. That generations had gone on, and this is the kind of people that you had uh, in, in the world. And then it says, so it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, like we read earlier, and they bore children to them. Now, so perhaps then the, the children of these people were um, mighty men, men of old, men of renown. It could be uh, a word that describes uh, the, the Nephilim. Uh, we don't know uh, exactly. Uh, but it is interesting that they were men of renown, men of renown. That does not seem to impress God. It does not seem to impress God that uh, in the course of human events, in the uh, procreation of humanity, you had great people, you had giant people, you had big people, you had powerful people born. This did not seem to impress God. God. Because what do we read in verse 5? Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continuously. Continually. This is a very interesting uh, verse. Uh, first of all, when it says, I. Oh, well. Uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was, ver was great. Okay, great. Great is a very interesting word here. In Hebrew, it's the word rabbah, rabbah. So you know how we say thank you in Hebrew, the whole phrase, right? Todah rabbah, like very much, right? Uh, you know what we call the seventh day of, uh, of Sukkot? Hoshana rabbah, right? Lord, save us very much, <laughs> Right? Uh, accentuating, accentuating the other word, you know? And so here, so when it says here, the wickedness was great, it's 
the wickedness of man was like very much, was uh, exceedingly. Uh, it's using that word on purpose. Not just there was lots of wickedness, but it was exceedingly wicked. Now you'll notice it says, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Okay? I, you know, that is, I, even in the, with the way it's written in Hebrew, the words stand out. And that's, you know, rock uh, ra'ah, you know, only evil. Uh, is was on, you know uh, was on the thoughts of of every the intent of the thoughts of his heart, and so here we have the opposite, the opposite of Genesis one thirty one, and God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So now it's very evil. Now it's very evil. And, uh, and so now we see that it began with, you know, Adam and Eve continued with Cain. Uh, and now we see even though men began to call upon the name of the Lord, and even with Seth, you know, a, a new beginning, we see the, the degeneration of humanity. Uh, and the wickedness of mankind, and that every intent of the thought of his of his mind and heart was evil continuously. It reminds us, you know, of a passage, for example, in Jeremiah. Right, it's a famous one in Jeremiah chapter uh, seventeen. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, this is written way after the flood, way after the call of Abraham, obviously. It's in the days of Jeremiah. Uh, uh, and, and we see that he uh, recognizes that it's still true. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we see going back here to chapter 6, that God created man in his image, men and women in his image and in his likeness. And we see that it is not the fact that there was an error in the way that God created mankind, but we see what man has done to himself, what humanity has done to himself, brings God to the place where he regrets having created humanity. Not that humanity is a mistake, but he's grieved over the perversion that comes from human sin. Now, what is God's reaction? So far, we see that he's, uh, you know, he's angry. But notice in verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And then you see uh, repeated in, at the end of verse 7, And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry, I regret that I have made them. Again, it is important to recognize that God's grief, God's sorrow is not in the 
way that he made man or in the absolute nature of man. Man is created in the image and likeness of God. But it's the debacle, the debauchery, it's the rebellion of humanity that brings God to this place. We see it back in the garden with Adam and Eve. Did God desire to kick them out of the garden? Was, was he glad, like a spick and span, uh, get them out of here? No. It grieved God that Adam and Eve could not enjoy the garden. It grieves God when humanity rebels against, uh, against the way of the Lord. Now, there's a lot we could say here about uh, God being sorry uh, and God grieving in his heart. Uh, when you read the word uh, uh, sorry here, for example, okay, uh, the word uh, for uh, sorry that we read is a word that is uh, used uh, sometimes uh, as a word for um, God has uh, uh, repented or God has uh, 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 changed his mind. Okay, and uh, certainly, uh, when uh, God is sorrowful and regretting, really, it, it, the, the best—I think—the best word is regret. It means that I. Uh, God, whenever it's used, actually, there's a change of strategy that comes to take place. For example, you read the same thing when God, God regrets that he had made Saul king uh, over, uh, over Israel. He regrets that he had made Saul king. He doesn't change his plan, but he changes his strategy. And this is because, if you go back to what we were saying in chapter 2, especially in Genesis, that there is a level of a free will that man has to rebel. And it is amazing that God, in his love, does not do away with humankind. But God works within the context of humans and human sin and human decision-making to bring about the ultimate restoration. And so here we see that God... Uh, he is sorry that he has made man on the earth, and it's going to cause him to decide to blot out mankind. Very much like, and on purpose, I believe, much like the reaction of God to the golden calf. Remember? He's going to blot everybody out and start all over again with Moses. But, but Moses intercedes, and you read that interaction between God and Moses. Here, uh, as we'll see even with Noah, there is no intercession here. There is no intercession. Uh, um, but God uh, is uh, desirous of blotting out man whom he has created from the face of the land. For, and again, he reiterates, I, am, I regret that I have made them. What a sorrowful situation. But the second term in verse 6 uh, is a very telling little phrase. And he was grieved in his heart. God was grieved in his heart. Emotionally saddened. You know, 
you can regret a decision that you make, and then you change course, strategy, and move on. But here we see that this is very personal to God, being grieved in his heart. That the sin of humanity, the rebellion of humanity, God has taken personally, and he is grieved in his uh, and he is grieved in his heart. Now, we read in a lot of places in the Bible that sin causes God to experience anguish. Anguish. Well, God is transcendent, all-powerful, sovereign, the rock. He is also what we call imminent, right? Close, relational. Where those two meet, that's a mystery that only God knows. But he is relational. And although he is all-powerful, there is, believe it or not, the way the Bible describes God, a vulnerable part of God. There is a vulnerable part where God grieves and is saddened over sin. And, you know, his judgment and his grief uh, go hand in hand. We often say, we say judgment and mercy, but his, the, his judgment and his grief go hand, uh, hand in hand. Um, there's a couple of places in the scripture, for example, in Psalm 78, in Psalm 78, it's a great little illustration here, in verses 40 and 41, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. And look what it says in verse 41. And again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Sometimes we get the idea that, that, that God's attitude is more of, oh, what am I going to do with these people? You know, ugh, okay. You know, in his anger, he judges. Uh, and, and, you know, in, and, and God is full of judgment. And, and there are times when he decides to show mercy. But God is pained. This week's, in this week's Torah portion, God is pained that the people do not trust, do not trust him. Think of the pain, and maybe you've experienced this kind of pain. Think of the pain of being a parent and your children do not trust you. Do not trust your judgment. And you watch them make wrong choices in their lives. And you know that it's only going to bring sorrow. That is painful. And we read that God experiences pain. He is vulnerable. He is sad. He is grieved when we sin. In Isaiah chapter 63, you have another place. In Isaiah 63, and this is actually a very important verse for a number of reasons. Okay, Maybe you remember this from your recent reading. Right? In Isaiah 63 in verse 10. Well, actually, no, verse 9. Verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy and fought against them. He engraved his Holy Spirit. By the way, that tells us something about the Holy Spirit, about the Ruach, that there's a moral dimension to the Spirit of God, that the, 
the Spirit of God is not just uh, simply an emanation, but that the Holy Spirit can indeed be grieved. Okay? Very important. Now that should remind us of a passage in the Brit Chadashah, in the New Covenant, in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, we read here, beginning in verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, just like in Isaiah 63. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. How do you know it? How do you know that the Spirit of God is grieved? I'm going to tell you how you know. This is very important. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a very important passage to, to understand. Some important uh, basic Bible doctrine here. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay? So Paul wrote several letters to the Corinthians. Okay? We know that first letter, no, letter none of us would like to get that letter. Right? A scathing denunciation. Right? Very much so. Full of judgment and harsh words and so on. Now, in this letter, Paul is reflecting on that, all right? Uh, and he says in uh, chapter 7, <clears throat> regarding that letter, beginning in, in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, grief, See the word, the word for grief, but I would say that what it really translates into in the lives of the Corinthian people is guilt, is guilt. That's why it caused them sorrow. They were sorrowful. They were grieved because of their guilt. They were convicted, in other words. Okay? Though only for a while, I now rejoice, now that, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Big verse, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to deliverance, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So when you sin and you feel guilty, you can say, thank you, Lord, that I know that you dwell within me, that you are experiencing the grief of the Ruach, HaKodesh, the grief, the, the grie grieving of the Spirit of God. And how do we experience that? It's, it's like pain, like moral pain, right? Uh, and that is guilt. And what do we do? We repent. We go to God. We go to God. He's the healer. It's just like when something happens inside of you, but you can't tell what it is, and you have a terrible pain, do you say to yourself, I have a terrible pain, so I better not go to the doctor. I'm going to just go and wait for it to be all better. I certainly don't want to go to the doctor. No, we don't say that. Well, it's the very same thing with spiritual pain. What do we do? We need to go to the doctor. We need to go to the great physician. First of all, 
There is no copay, okay, nor will you have a deductible, all right? There's no downside, okay, of going to God when we are in emotional pain, guilt. Go to him because he will embrace you like that prodigal's father waiting on the highway, right? He's waiting for you to come because he's hurting. He is grieving. He is experiencing affliction and pain because of your sin. Why? Because he loves you. Not because it makes him have to change the plan or something, but because he loves you, just like a parent and a child. And you know, I, I, just the other day, we were having a conversation about why did God create man? Why did God make man? Was it to demonstrate his glory, the glory of God, so that we would be image bearers of his glory? May I suggest that all those things that we know we're supposed to do are as a result of being created, but not the reason for the creation. That the reason for the creation has something to do with the nature of God being a God of love and a desire of God to demonstrate his love, his love toward us. That's why we read, if you remember in 1 John, I'm only going to mention this. I mean, you know, it's an entire uh, topic in and of itself. But in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 8 and 16, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Okay? By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. And then if you go down to verse 16, it says, And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us, that we have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. He goes on and on about, about love. So may I suggest that, the, that mankind perhaps was created to, to experience, be the recipients for God to pour his love on a unique being that only he could create, that, that he could shower his love upon, and that is humanity. And that when we go astray, it is like a thorn to God in his side. Because he loves us so much. He loves us so much that he puts up with being afflicted. In our affliction, he is afflicted. In all of our sin and and grievous defiance, God lives in affliction. You know, that is a very important way, one of the ways that we understand the love of a God. And when you come back then to the famous John chapter 3, remember that he also wrote, God is love. For in this way, or force, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son 
that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. God loves this world so much that He he takes our grief on Himself. He takes our sin and, and grief on Himself. Think about Isaiah 53. In Isaiah chapter 53... We read here, He was despised and and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, he takes our griefs and sorrows on himself and all we have to say is he deserved it. It's basically what that is saying. That, that's, that's humanity. Make fun of Yeshua. Make fun of the message of salvation. That's what the world does. The world has sent Yeshua into exile for 2,000 years. But he continues to love us. Even when we pay him lip service. Even when we reject him. Even when we go against our very nature and say there is no God. No one is born that way. He continues to love us, but he continues to grieve. And so, yes, there is a judgment coming on this world. But it's not because God is looking forward to getting back at everybody. It's because, uh, it, it is because he must judge sin, but it grieves him to do it. Remember those words of Yeshua when he cries over Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How much I wanted to gather you together the way a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. It grieves God that our people don't understand who he is. Reject him. It grieves him when people walk away from him. That is who God is. He loves his creation that much. And so, finally, when you come back to here in Genesis chapter 6, and about the flood and the judgment. You cannot talk about the judgment and the destruction without remembering the grief of God, the anguish of God in bringing this to pass. But as we will see next time, it's not complete anguish that God found, that Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so even to this day, God, you know, when it comes to Noah, I remember this in a Bible study. Did God find Noah or did God provide Noah? You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Certainly, God finds Noah, but may I suggest that God provides Noah? Absolutely. That's right. You know? Uh, And because God has loved the world from the beginning. He did not quit with Cain and Abel, right? But he sent a Seth. He sends a Noah. He sends an Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and then, of course, Yeshua. Uh, And so God does indeed love this world deeply. But God finds great grief over rebellion and rejection. So may that comfort us. Comfort us to know that God cares that deeply about our lives. And so may we run to him when we are filled with anguish and when we are filled with sadness, 
when we are filled with grief and guilt, run to the one who delivers. Run to God and he will bring restoration. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you, God, that uh, we see that you do not change. You are, you are a God of love. You are a God who provides. You are a God of covenant uh, and all that goes with that love. Uh, and, but Lord, thank you, God, that the pinnacle of your love is the deliverance that we have in Messiah Yeshua. Lord, if only people could understand that. It's not about religion, but it's about knowing you and restoration and satisfaction and recognizing that there's a significance in life and, and all of that because you made us. Lord, you desire to love us. Thank you, Lord, that in, that in um, restoring us, you have given us love to the place where we can read as that passage about don't grieve the Holy Spirit uh, uh, continues. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Messiah also is forgiving you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Messiah also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And so let us not grieve your ruach, but Lord, may we give you joy as we love as you have loved us. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.